when you're thinking about the design of spaces as architecture, the development and construction of spaces is boombox, and then the policy and the community and the social aspect of spaces is design trust. All of those together make a city, and that's really what gets you to the equitable spaces and systems. You can't just take one of those out and think it's going to get you to a level of spatial equity and design justice. It's not going to happen. Welcome back to Design Lab. This is Bon Koo. Today we have Catherine Darnstadt. She is the founder of Layton Design. It's a boutique architecture and urban design firm that leverages civic innovation and social impact to design more equitable spaces and systems. She founded her practice in 2010. Catherine and her firm have prototyped new design systems to advance urban agriculture, support small business, create spaces for youth makers, advance building innovation, and create public space frameworks. She is the founder of Boombox. That's Chicago's first micro-retail pop-up in a shipping container. It's so cool. To date, they have supported over 150 small businesses and built new models of finance and policy to support micro-retail in Chicago. In addition, she recently co-founded a community design nonprofit that's called Design Trust Chicago to address ongoing spatial and social injustices in the built environment. Catherine and I talk about the role of architecture in improving public health, repurposed buses acting as mobile produce markets, and how to redefine public spaces. Thank you for listening in, and especially those who give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Sierra CMD gave us a really nice review. She says, as a current resident, this podcast has inspired me to reimagine the practice and design of impactful quality care. It means a lot when you write and review our podcast. We read them all. And don't forget to download episodes and to subscribe. Okay, let's dive into my conversation with Catherine Darnset of Layton Design. Catherine Darnset, welcome to Design Lab. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And you're currently in Chicago? I I am. It is a beautiful, sunny, cold day in Chicago. So we're going to get into the negative numbers this weekend. So I feel like we finally have winter now. Yeah. Yeah, Well, I'm in Philadelphia. We've had like this big winter storm. It snowed a little bit today. So it's, it's been nice to see snow on the ground, but you know, I'm originally from uh, Chicago. Chicago I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, A little bit North Nile. So I'm I'm, not from Chicago. Yeah. A little bit North of (laughs) Chicago, but my fondest memories of being in Chicago and uh, I'm a Midwesterner. So yeah. Um, Yeah. I wanted to start off. I was very curious to know like what inspired you to focus your firm's mission on designing more equitable spaces and Mm -hmm. systems. Right. Well, the systems part came later Mm because I didn't understand how to make a space. And that's the perennial architect problem of, you know, I started the firm very young, so not as much professional experience and, you know, post post education and then beginning of your architectural profession, you really don't know how a building comes together. It's not only Mm. the drawings, the details, the mechanical system. It's like, how did the funding get here? How did the team get here? How did all, how does a building come to be? Mm. And so when we thought about spaces, it was, you know, obviously what does a space look and feel like and how are we actually making 
more types of architectural and safe spaces across the city, especially in neighborhoods where it could be considered both disinvested and a development desert and an architectural mm. desert, right? So that's how we kind of started is like, let's bring more public spaces across the city, specifically in Chicago, you know, the south and the west sides of the city. Mm. Yeah. When it came to kind of looking at systems, it was trying to answer the question of like, well, how do I build a community center? How does that even get there? It's I, We can design it, but how do you actually make the funding, make the team, get the land, go through that whole entire process of making buildings? Mm. So I think that's where it started to become looking at more equitable spaces and systems because it's a very inequitable built environment system. Mm. And you could look at that, whether you want to, there's areas of studies around every single piece of, of inequity that was designed into the system, whether it's redlining, whether it's financing, mm. how low income tax credits are distributed to the uneven enforcement of building violations. I mean, you mm. can pick one or two a thread and have a whole entire graduate thesis just studying that. And so I think that's where it, for me, it started to unpack, well, I, I want to, at our firm, can we start to look at some of the systems? And what does that mean for our role as architects in that kind of tranche of architecture of what we do, which is difficult, complex, and lovely just in and of itself versus everything else that comes, precedes, and comes after architecture. Got it. And your firm's about 10 years old. Now, yeah, right? it was 10 years during, 10, decade old during the pandemic. Oh. So we're still here. We grew. So I was fortunate to do that. Keep our staff, bring some more staff on. And, you know, we didn't get to have our party like I wanted to. Uh -huh. <laughs> but I think part of it was when you hit that big round number of, you know, 10, it's like, it, it's all of a sudden you have no choice but to be incredibly introspective. Yeah. And think about first, like, holy shit, I got here. I can't yeah. believe that. You know, I can't believe it's been 10 years. It kind of feels uh -huh. like one of those things when you see your niece or nephew and you're like, oh, I remember you when you were little and you kind of have to do that to yourself, mm -hmm. right? And so I spent about a year just overthinking and uh, overthinking things of like, what does 10 years mean? Where do we go from here? Can mm -hmm. we even, can I even make another 10 years of this mm -hmm. firm or is that the right pathway? Because what do I want to do in 10 years? How do I get there? Is it only architectural and building projects, spaces, or is it about systems? Hmm. And when do I want to go to sleep? Um, <laughs> so kind of, yeah, I mean, looked at all I'm of trying, that. I figure that out every day of like, when, when I need to sleep today. And sometimes I, I forget. <laughs> yes. Um, Definitely think about that. And I had, I spent time talking to really great mentors that I have, peers in the profession, asking sometimes very simple and big questions somewhere. It's like, you know, we were, I thought we were just supposed to go out for drinks. Why are you asking me this question? <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And one of my mentors said something really profound to me. It was so simple. And this is why they're so much smarter than me is they said, I said, well, you know, should I sell the firm? Should I close it? Should I partner? Should I bring on a partner? Like, what should I do? Tell me, what should I do? And they were like, have you ever done just one thing? Have you ever focused just on the firm in this mm. past 10 years? Have you ever spent, done that? Have you had, mm. only had one job? 
And then answer is no. And I still don't have one job, but I got what they meant. You know, yeah. how do you how do you really narrow down your focus and, and figure out what it is you want to do through one avenue? And so I took that to heart, kind of pulled some things off my plate. So I pulled teaching off of my plate. I was teaching mm-hmm. also for 10 years. And I was like, this is good time wow. to, to maybe take a break. And it turned out, I, I don't think I could a- a- handle virtual studio right now either so i think that worked out well for me personally it aligned but i added other things so i don't know if you ever want how like big of a film buff you are but if you know indiana jones and the temple of doom he's trying Uh to replace the weight yeah oh yeah Uh, yeah. so that's kind of what i did with my life i was like (laughs) i'll take off teaching but i'm gonna put this bag of sand right there and i'll and that'll be the other thing that i'm doing well yeah i can't wait to get into these bags of sand because they're super interesting and just basically trying not to get run over by a giant rock (laughs) (laughs) what my life is like (laughs) well congrats on those 10 years and one of my favorite projects of latent design is one of your very early projects it was uh on creating a mobile produce market in a decommissioned transit oh, bus. Oh, that was and, one of the old ones, yeah. Yeah, and so I actually saw this bus at the AIA convention in Orlando in 2017. Mm-hmm. It was there, and this project won multiple awards, and I look at this as like you designed this public health intervention in mm-hmm. Chicago, and I was like curious to know, like, did you see this as a public health intervention? Was that your mindset? And can you just walk us through like what that right. design of the project entailed? Mm-hmm. So I could, I'll kind of toggle back and forth in terms of scales and how I talk about this. So I can say personally that I didn't think about food access in the same way I do now. I didn't think about food access or architectural as being a public health issue or, you know, able to restore food access at the beginning of the project. It was, you know, that first partnership with the nonprofit organization who specifically did focus on this that around food access that it was where we kind of understood their mission and I understood their mission and how space helped that. So this was a project that has odd similarities to economic conditions that we're going through right now. I mean, they were a nonprofit organization that their whole original plan and goal was to reinvent the corner grocery store or the, the corner, whether you call it a bodega, whether you call it just like a stop and go, just the corner stops that are in predominantly uh, black neighborhoods that don't offer healthy food choices, that don't create safe space, that they wanted to redefine that business model and bring more of those. So I would say they were kind of like this micro grocery store concept well before the, the like go grocers and the different mm. things that we have now they were kind of pioneering it. Okay. However, the re- they their business plan, because it was based on bricks and mortar, was severely impacted after the last recession, mm. and that no longer became viable. So they rethought their strategy and white paper, in a sense, and came down to this idea of, well, if we can't develop it as our model, how do we get someone else to develop it and essentially mm. show the demand in a different way, you know, because we need to talk or for them, they needed to talk to grocery retailers and speak the same language. They had to talk in linear feet of food, volume, Mm -hmm. you know, monetary demand and kind of dispel this myth that somehow neighborhoods of color 
don't want to be healthy, which is not true. Yeah, but, you know, yeah. a decade ago and even still to this day, you have grocery deserts and produce deserts and food deserts in, across our country yeah. because there's an overarching myth that if a, a chain grocery goes into a neighborhood, they're not going to make money and no one's going to sure, buy yeah. the good stuff, which is completely false. So that's where when we hooked up with them, and this was when um, I was working and volunteering with a nonprofit organization, we built a team around responding to what that demand could be. Hmm. So we thought about, you know, can we still do bricks and mortar? Is it like a market? Is it a cart? And then concurrently at the same time, we found out this weird bit of city infrastructure information that every year the city of Chicago decommissions buses, transit buses. And normally you can't use them as a transit bus, but you can they do have life left. So mm -hmm. normally they'll go for parts, they'll go to Mexico, they go south, they mm -hmm. go to the prison system. And this organization was like, could we buy a bus? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, can we make a bus a mobile grocery store? And the big idea, they're like, could we make it an ice cream truck, but it's it's healthy food? Yeah. And that's how kind of the, the merging of the mobile, what became Fresh Moves Mobile Market kind of came together. And if for myself and for the members of the team that I worked with, which, you know, probably at least 20 different architects, designers, engineers worked on the project wow. over the course, because it was probably two years before the bus got out and it was finally done. We kind of had to design everything but the food because yeah. we had the white paper from the nonprofit, but they didn't have a brand. They didn't have a website. They didn't have a business car. They didn't have a bus when we first started working with them. So we, we went through the whole process. And even though it's a very small scale, it, it showed this is the possibility of all of the ways that design, not only design thinking, but mm. design implementation can make an impact. And this is also where we can push as how far small projects have impacts. Mm. Because ultimately, once it finally got out into the world and existed, it still exists with a new non-for-profit has ownership of it. So okay. it's still, I still pass it on the That's street amazing. to this day. And it also helped shift and, and won a USDA grant early on. So the USDA then wow. started to study how, what's the impact of mobile markets in both urban environments and rural environments? Because then they saw through kind of political action also that was associated with the project, there needs to be a study on food deserts because yeah. it's not just urban areas, it's also rural that come through it. And so there, there might be mobile solutions and different ways that this could expand. It's such an elegant but simple solution of just literally bringing it into neighborhoods. And when I walk through the bus, you could pack a lot of food in there. It's like 300 square feet or something like that. I mean, it's your, it's your typical transit bus. And when you, and that was the thing, that's how you helped make, we helped make the argument of, well, now we're talking about 75 linear feet of produce, which starts to align with your produce display in your grocery store. Right. So what we're talking about making metrics that are translatable, that's how we helped make that. So then we could say, okay, so grocery retailer, you could come into this neighborhood because we've shown the demand. We could show you the volume that we're moving. And then we could start to make the case of maybe then pairing you with a local economic development organization or just get this West Side neighborhood on your radar or this South Side neighborhood on your radar. Hmm. Because it took additional, you know, now we have more grocery retailers in neighborhoods, but still, and we're working on a grocery store now. Oh, um, a local produce oh, market. Cool. So we, yeah, so we could you could make that thread. That's it's still it's one tiny project, but for us, it's been a thread of 
projects and work that have yeah. come directly related to that over the decade. So I think it's twofold for how designers can think of the narrative is you could look at design impact at all scales. So I mm -hmm. think architecture don't, you know, people many times in many presentations ask me if I ever want to be an architect and, you know, they do it like backhanded kind of compliment because uh -huh. our projects early on were very small. So it's kind of a push of like, here's the impact of design and architecture and mm. what architects can do in one small scale, but then also how that thread of a relationship and an idea can actually continue to grow over time. And I think it's also helpful when we look at the scale of the bus, like granted the design won awards, but it was all of the other systems of the team that worked mm. with us because there was a political system, there was a finance system, there was um, neighborhood system, there was federal, you know, mm. and that's really what made it work. So we could have this elegantly designed piece and it would just be an object, yeah, right? But without everything else around, that's the system that actually made the object work. It's not and the it, other way around. And architects are taught it's the other way yeah, around, but it's yeah. not. <laughs> And I want to continue kind of like this thread because you're trained as an architect, but I, it, it's like you almost work with public policy as a type of like design medium. And mm -hmm. you've actually redesigned policy for some of your projects. And I think yeah. you had done that in your process of creating Boombox. So mm -hmm. can you tell us what Boombox is and how you had to redesign policy in order yeah. to get Boombox off the ground? Yeah, another small space that ultimately became another job. Like, so, you know, <laughs> I can tell you that. So Boombox is in this vein of thinking about how do you create more equitable spaces and systems? One of the things that we notice in Chicago, and this is true probably across a city of any scale, is you have a lack of affordable spaces, whether yeah. that's housing, but it also translates into commercial spaces. But then every summer you go out to a festival and you're surrounded by tents of local craftspeople uh -huh. and you're like, wow, we have so much talent in, a, in our city. Yeah. And all I wanted to do in a very naive sense is I wanted to be able to take the vendor who is amazing that I'm buying something from like a, like this shirt, you know, you get it from an amazing small craftsperson and you want to take that person and put them in the storefront that you pass every day at work on Monday mm -hmm. and say like, why can't they go there? Yeah. So it's like, Here's someone amazing, put them in this place that's not amazing right now and yeah. make it better. And that doesn't work, right? Because that's just not how commercial real estate and leasing works mm. at all. It's not, it's completely stacked against uh, a, a small business person. And so we, I started to think about and with a team of people is like, how can we make small scale commercial spaces? What would micro retail look like? Mm -hmm. And we didn't have to look far for examples. I mean, that's, you know, the Venice boardwalk in, Cal in Santa Monica, mm -hmm. right? That's Love a bunch it. of small spaces, yeah. but you go there. That's, you know, go anywhere in, you know, you could go to Japan, you could go to, you know, Morocco, you could go to little small souks. We have tons of examples yeah. globally of small yep. markets and how vibrant that they are. You know, the Chicago and most cities that manifest in neighborhood festivals at a very temporary scale. Yep. What if we could make permanent structures for permanent occupancy? It was kind of the idea behind that. And so we thought of the boombox concept. We're like, okay, in Chicago, the thread of small retail was kind of newspaper stands. 
So if you looked at kind of the history of newspaper stands in Chicago, we had a lot of them in the city. And then Mm -hmm. if you look at how they were regulated out of the city, it was slowly regulating out mostly immigrant and then minority newsstand operators out Mm -hmm. of areas as they became more affluent. Mm -hmm. And so that's why in Chicago, if you drive around, you see like maybe a handful of newspaper stands that look like they're going to fall over because they can't. The, the operator can't fix them. If they fix them, they're doing something to a building, then that building is no longer compliant. So then they have to tear it down. <sighs> Weird thread. Oh, but that was like where the first, you know, that was like the first startup business was a yeah. newspaper stand. You sewed the papers and you had some gum and maybe you sold something else and kind of like it, it was a hub. So we wanted to create that. We technically couldn't. So this idea of a micro retail space, which we ultimately named Boombox, didn't exist and couldn't exist in any way, shape or form. It was too small. It was below the minimum building size per buildings, per zoning. You couldn't put structures on a public plaza. Mm. So we couldn't do it from a zoning standpoint. If it's not a building, then we can't get a business license for it from business affairs and consumer protection. If we wanted to have a food vendor in there, they needed to go through public health. But again, it's not a a building, so we can't get anything from a public health inspection. And then it was on a public plaza. So CDOT, the Department of Transportation, doesn't allow structures. So those kind of go together. And then the last one, the sixth department we had to work with, that was five. The sixth one was cultural oh affairs, because if we wanted to have an artist in the space who happened to want to play music or something like that, then they needed a, uh, an artist permit or a festival permit to make that happen. So six different departments we had to coordinate with for a building that was about ultimately 150 square feet. So we would be in conference rooms, obviously bigger than that wow. with all of these departments. And you'd have to remind people like what we're talking about is smaller than the room we're in. Yeah. It's really not going to like detrimentally affect anything. Let's just do one. Let's just do one. And so that's where the policy came in, right? Because we're talking with six different departments yeah. and we had to figure out an avenue to make it exist. So this thing that seems very logical c- cannot be built in the city. There's just no mm. way it can. And I really thought I just didn't know enough about the code that I was misinterpreting it, but it really couldn't. And so we took a pathway and this helped because there were people within the different departments who who understood what we were trying to do. So it was about finding the right partners and then help them helping you inside. Yeah. to make the policy. So then we made new policy, new ordinance, passed city council, and that passed city council probably two weeks before we opened up the first one. Because we were building it. So we were taking yeah, a chance. So we were designing and building the structure while we're trying to write the policy. And we're like, we're gonna, it's, we're, it's going somewhere. It's going somewhere. I don't care. You're we're flying the airplane while building at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And so the, it passed council. And then we opened up a couple of weeks later and got it on the site. Yeah, I love that. I studied, <laughs> I went to grad school for public policy. And I tell people like designing policy. I mean, that, that is a, that's a real design thing. It's a design medium. And what I love about Boombox, it's beautiful. Can you just describe to the audience like what it looks like and how you, I know you built it off site and you bring it to the site and yeah. it's, it's beautiful. So I described the process and that was about a year long process wow. to make that happen. And that's considered very fast. So now that I've gotten yeah. deeper into development and policy and all, all of that, people were like, wow, that happened really fast. I was like, you didn't see it from my perspective. It felt like it took forever. But 
The structure itself is, it's about what we ended up using because we were very budget constrained on it because I funded it. So it was latent design, latent designs profits from like the first five years of the company went towards that. So like some people come up and like, oh, why didn't you put a light here? I was like, I was literally out of money. Like you don't (laughs) understand. I couldn't afford anything. Why do you have this? I was because I was broke. You know, (laughs) that's the reason why it's there. Nothing more, nothing less. It was it. So our original design was always this chevron. It's in a plan. It's a big chevron of a rectangle. So take a normal rectangle and then make every make it just a big zigzag in terms of the perimeter. And that was our main structure because what we started to look at is how do we make a small footprint of a space? We don't necessarily want it to be a rectangle. Mm-hmm. We can make this like we truly can make this kind of like an object um, that sits in by itself on a site because that's what it had to do. But we decided how do we start to think about the vendors that are coming in the space if they're normally, if they're not in a storefront, they don't have the retail infrastructure to set up a display or have minimal, where can we start to provide this kind of like elevated kind of Scandinavian feel vanilla box, right? So it's not all white, but we can make it, you know, like that style, right? And so the zigzags then ended up to be a place where we could put adjustable shelves Mm. in each of those little chevrons. And then that could be an instantaneous display space. And then because of the way it looked and felt, it already kind of elevated the way the storefront feels. So it gave an elevated base branding that you could apply your own business brand to. And then the big piece, why I didn't have extra money for anything else, was the storefront had to be operable. Like Mm. that was a non-negotiable from a design sense in this idea. So we have a big 12 foot operable storefront so that it could be storefront or you could open it up and you could spill out into the plaza in front. It could become a stage. It could be a theatrical performance. It could do all of these different things. In COVID, it became a place where people just walked up to the edge of that and you could hand out your pickup goods and everything like that. So those things are expensive, but it was non-negotiable. And so that's what we had. In the end, we ended up swapping our structural frame. Instead of building our own structural frame, we used a retrofitted shipping container that you can't see on the exterior at all. It's completely disguised. And just by that one small move, we suddenly became shipping container fabricators. (laughs) Like Everyone in the city who ever wanted a shipping container called us after that. And it ultimately, so Boombox is its own company that now... Um, has built multiple micro retail in Chicago, throughout the Midwest. We have are building our modular factory. So not only container fabrication, but then also thinking about other small scale structures that we could build in the shop and then deliver to the site, whether that's accessory dwelling units, we're working on our first two flat, that thread just kind of kept Amazing. snowballing as well. And it- and it's one of your other like side, small side jobs small that you have, side right? Small side things that I do, yes. And it has its own, what's a site that people could get to it? It's boomboxchicago.com. Yeah, check yeah. it out. It's, yeah. they're, they're, they're amazing. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I love all this work that you do because, you know, place matters so much in health. And, you know, where you live is actually the strongest predictor of how long you will live. And mm-hmm all these social determinants of health that you're actually Mm -hmm. tackling of like, how do we increase jobs Mm -hmm. in these areas? How do we improve access to healthy food? And I was wondering if you had some thoughts of how we can like align these worlds of like public health and architecture. 
because mm-hmm. there's so much alignment, but these worlds are so siloed. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there for architects and designers to work with the public health folks. Mm-hmm. First, architects have to realize that we have no power in like this kind of hierarchy of decision making in our cities. Mm. I think design is powerful, but I don't think designers or architects are powerful in Mm. the current situation. And I don't know how to necessarily resolve that without architects and designers feeling more comfortable taking political and policy and leadership actions in other fields. But I do think you are to a point that public health and design do intersect in incredible ways. And I think there are more examples of how we start to map what the impacts of the built environment are on public health. For example, in in Chicago, there was a great article and research piece maybe a couple years ago through one of the universities and it was published that mapped life expectancies in different areas of the city based on both the red line, which goes farthest north to farthest south in the city, Mm. and the green line, which goes from the loop all the way west in the city. And over those two lines, as you're going from more affluent, mostly white neighborhoods to less affluent black and Hispanic neighborhoods, you're losing up to 30 years of a lifespan just on one transit line. So we lose a whole generation in our city, depending on where you go. So that information then translates to, well, why is that? Okay. So is it, it's not about just the, you know, you could simplify it and people could say, oh, it's the violence in the neighborhoods. And it's not, it's because you have no trees. So there's a heat Island effect without shade. If you're not walking, if you have no grocery stores or access to healthy food, then you have different health impacts over the course of your life. And then if you don't feel that your neighborhood is safe or walkable, where, where is the extra, the daily kind of like simplicity of taking a walk? Where is that happening? And when is that happening? And then the other thing is you overlay our just general green and recreation space in the city. And you can see that's also not equitably distributed. So mm-hmm. if you're three miles from the lakefront, how are you actually getting there? And what's the you know, what's the system in place or the transit system to get you there? Or if you live in a neighborhood without a park, which many do, where are you actually going outside to recreate and exercise? And so that's really how we have to start to look at it is bridging some of those design deficiencies that exist at the city infrastructure level. Hmm. It's not a question of, yeah, we want to build a new development here. And that development and one parcel is going to add one tree to the streetscape mm. because they have to yeah. because of zoning requirements or landscape yeah. ordinance. But what does that mean for the rest of the block? So I have one tree f- or a couple trees to go stand under? Yeah. Probably not because it's a private development and I'm damn sure their security is going to shoo someone away. <laughs> you know? So it doesn't make sense. One project that we're working on that where it kind of took a whole city to realize that Mm. is we're working with a team of people in Rochester, Minnesota, as part of a development that's led by the Mayo Clinic and the Destination Medical Center that that this kind of team in representing the city, where they are rethinking how that city could be a city of wellness. Mm. So it came from kind of this simple idea of, well, if a doctor wanted to at this world-renowned institution that millions of people come to every year. If a doctor wanted to tell someone- One of the best best on the planet. I've been there and it's an amazing institution. Yeah. So you know what the downtown of Rochester feels like. Not amazing. 
Yes, exactly. <laughs> Very much so not amazing. And it, it should be. And if a doctor wanted to write a prescription to tell you to take a walk around the block because you have to exercise to get well, mm. it's not about going there because you're sick. It's also about staying there because you're getting well. You can't. It's a terrible yeah. walk. Terrible. Oh. It's yeah. awful. I mean, there was like five benches in all of the downtown area. We mapped them. And so and there are five benches in all of downtown. And if you have any ability constraints, you're not sitting down on them. Yeah. And if you have a family member or three with you, you're in somebody's standing. So, you know, they started to think about, well, let's redefine our public spaces. And this has been a multi-year process with them of first redefining their down their main downtown public space, and then now designing the connection of that main downtown public space to their park. Because mm. that's like in Chicago, that's like two blocks of a walk. You're like, oh my gosh, it's right there. Yeah. But nobody goes there because it's a terrible walk too. Yeah. Yeah. So doing all of that together. And so thinking about this at the municipal and the city level of what does health and wellness mean if we want to take this idea of making a block better for everyone or making a walk better, because we know that makes people better when they yeah. feel safe, when they go outside, they exercise, they relax. It's not just a physical well-being it's mental well-being that also comes from that so like make your block better and they've taken that to heart and i mean obviously they're investing billions of dollars in all of this redevelopment and thinking through that but it comes down to literally how many and where are the benches where are the trees and how can people gather and they're taking that to heart that's amazing. I didn't know you were working on that project. That's so cool. Maybe one day I'll update my website, but I swear <laughs> <laughs> after I take a nap, we'll do that too. That was on my 2020 to do this for real, but I, I, I let some things go because of the pandemic. I, I, yeah. Well, so one of your other jobs that you have, you helped start this thing called Design Trust yes. last year. <laughs> so <laughs> tell me about that. What, yeah, what's that yeah, about? That's funny. We actually just sent out our first newsletter today. Oh, so I'll yay. be sure to give you a link to that to share totally, with everyone. Totally, yeah. So Design Trust Chicago came from, it was kind of bolstered and I, I think expedited by a long-term need that has existed in Chicago. Chicago doesn't have a true community design center. You know, Philly does, San Francisco has multiple. Chicago doesn't. We have an amazing and giving- That's so surprising. It is. Because yeah. it's such a, it has such a long history of architecture there yeah. and there's such a big design community. Yeah, and we have a great design community and we definitely have activists designers who offer services and things like that. And we did have nonprofit design institution, ArchiWorks, but when, but it wasn't a design center. So it wasn't a community design center the same way Baltimore Neighborhoods Design Center is or Detroit Community Design Collaborative or any of yep. those institutions. And so ArchiWorks closed a couple years ago. There was always kind of like a gap in organizing of design space and organizing of design and built environment professionals. And so one of the things that came out of this introspection of thinking about 10 years of latent design mm -hmm. was, well, if I'm going to commit to another 10 years, how do I want to spend my time and what do I want to grow? So the thing that was going to replace the academic piece uh -huh. was this activist kind of piece of building an organization. Mm -hmm. And last year, it just got very expedited very quickly, not only because of the pandemic, we found ourselves supporting a variety of initiatives around 
in the inequities in the built environment through, you know, through Black Lives Matter, through the DAP program, Design is Protest, and then also just looking at where in, in our own city did we have to rebuild and repair relationships. Yep. And so this idea and the need for a design center came like really clearly into focus. You know, so we were already organizing designers and design teams around to respond to some of these initiatives. And mm. we're like, we're not setting ourselves up for any level of sustainability to keep doing this, nor are we addressing the issues of, you know, the reasons why there was, there's a lack of a design center within the city. And so I partnered with two great uh, women, Paula Aguirre Serrano, who runs Borderless. Okay. In Chicago, and El Ramel, who is with Get Cities, and we, the three of us, became co-founders of the Design Trust. The other thing that kind of kicked it in is we were fortunate to have a funder interested in this idea, mm. who also said this kind of this, had the same reaction you had, where you're like, "Really, this isn't here? Why? Yeah. Let's make it. Let's make it happen. Can you make it happen?" And it went by very quickly. So we were able to form our initial plans. We gathered a working group of people to kind of research this for a three-month period and then officially launched at the end of last year and then have about three years of funding in place to kind of grow and, and do the back-end operations and build design fellows, projects, and you know a database of design projects that come with that. So we've been able to set that in place. Mostly, I think, through you know leveraging interactions and relationships, but also why we're the three of us may be new to nonprofit in mm -hmm. this way. It's not we're not new to the issues that we're trying to resolve. So I think there was a lot of our experience that helped expedite this forward as well. Great. And how can listeners get there? There's a website link. There's for a it? website for that too. Yeah. So that's what is design, it? designtrustchicago.org. Awesome. So I want a, a couple of last questions. So yeah. you're a woman of color, mm -hmm. but the majority of the built environment is designed by men who don't look like you. Mm -hmm. What are some of the challenges that you face or have overcome in designing for equity? Mm -hmm. I would say probably that some of the same as you, right? I yeah. mean, you're in this, you're in a space where, you know, you're competing against as many white men, I think, proportionally as there are within architecture, yeah. right? And so what does that look like in terms of challenges? And we have within architecture, it's a, a dual fold. I think there's a couple challenges. One is not only of our lack of gender and racial diversity within the profession, but it's mm -hmm. also around kind of an, an allowance and respect of younger voices within the field. You, in almost any other field, I feel now everyone wants the younger, more brave, more bold voice. And it was like, let's, what does the 22 year old have to say? And uh -huh. architecture is like the complete opposite. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, I think. What does the old dude want to say? <laughs> what does the old dude want to say? And I think both are valid, but we have to kind of, we have to do so much to change that culture of, to allow more voices at all ages, races, and genders, right? And so part of, I think, what I try to do at Latent Design is to open doors, to call things out, make space for other people, and try and elevate at yeah. the same time. So I think about it in a way of talking and sharing my story. It's one of many stories, but hopefully it makes people more comfortable to share theirs and, you know, frankly, do it better, and hopefully in half the time. Because that's the only way that we're going to even shift the diversity of our profession from 
1% women of color firm yeah. owners to two, right? <laughs> and so, you know, and that's the real percentage that you're, that exists. So wow. I'm part of the 1% wow. in this aspect because I'm a woman of color firm owner, right? Wow. And then we have to look at ways to make this industry more diverse. And I hope I do it just through, this is one story, but hopefully it makes room for other stories to exist and keeping this ability and time within my schedule to do these interviews, to yeah. answer questions, to make sure I talk to young women at universities so that they could ask the questions, but then also start to make pathways forward. Yeah. So. What, what advice do you give to people who are listening who find themselves in that 1% <laughs> in whatever kind of feel that they're in? Because you know, you've had to overcome so much over the past mm -hmm. 10 years to, to get where mm -hmm. you're at. I'm sure there's times when you felt like you wanted to quit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think three times this week. <laughs> so it's not like I ever stopped. I think that it's oversimplified to say there's like stubbornness and perseverance are what you need. That's true for any profession. But I think what has made it easier is finding the other 1% of people mm -hmm. like me. And mm -hmm. that is who your kind of peer and motivation and cheer group becomes. So I've thought really hard about who are mentors, who are peers, who are helping you get to, who are facing the same challenges and maybe seen it a different way in a different mm. profession has helped. And I think more and more, there's a comfort level to call out and to challenge where you feel something's inequitable, whether you're the one experiencing it yeah. or you see it happening as part of a team or especially a project that you're on in architecture. Mm. So you, you have three jobs so far, I think, uh, latent design, <laughs> yes, design trust, and boombox. Am I missing anything in my no. research doing that? I was when like, you say it like that, you make it sound like it's bad. <laughs> I know, I'm just, I, I'm uh, uh, inspired and awed by your, I don't know when you sleep and to, to have all, all those uh that's it, right? I, I didn't miss anything. That's all that I'm aware of. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's something that I'm, I'm sure there's something that I'm missing already. But I, it sounds like a lot unless you start. There's like a vision very clearly in my head of how they all merge, mm. right? So I think more and more it all merges together, and not in sort of a messy way. It's in, in an informative and necessary way that when you're thinking about the design of spaces as architecture the development and construction of spaces is boombox. And then the policy and the community and the social aspect of spaces is design trust. All of those together make a city and that's really what gets you to the equitable spaces and systems. You can't just take one of those out and think it's going to get you to a level of spatial equity and design justice, it's not going to happen. So while they have three separate names, it's all towards the same common goal. Got it. And my final questions are, you know, what are one of your favorite projects that you're working on for 2021? And, and during this pandemic, how are you finding a way to just rest and find solace in all, all this craziness? Um, you know, there's a couple that were very exciting. So in Chicago, there was a new kind of development opportunity of how the city was um, using public funds to redevelop long neglected buildings or sites. 
Mm-hmm. I'm a South on the West side. So the, the project is called Invest Southwest and we're part of three teams right now. So it's been very exciting to go through this process to be some of the first to go through this process, learn, give feedback and kind of, you know, imagine what sites and buildings can look like in the next couple of years. So those have been the most exciting projects right now. We're also working, like I mentioned earlier, on the first grocery store coming to, it's a small black woman owned grocery store coming to the West side, who was actually one of our boombox vendors. What? So this idea oh, so we want to cool. grow. Yeah, we want to grow oh. businesses so that they do that. We get to follow that thread, which is which is just exciting. Like, yeah. you know, I'm, just, oh. I'm just excited about that. And then I, in terms of what was it, rest and relaxation and solace, yeah. I don't <laughs> think that's there. It's something that I, I personally struggle with, like, you know, being frankly honest, like I personally struggle with mental health and work-life balance issues. And I think I do the same, big, same yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so I do the, what's like rule one, number one rule of thing not to do is I work more to ignore yeah. it. Right. Or make it like go away. Cause you have no space. So you just like get exhausted. So I'm trying, I'm really trying to work better on that, you know, and figure, figure that out. I think what was interesting, the only benefit of the pandemic is, is that it felt like a lot of clutter went away time-wise and mentally and there was a reprioritization and some of it was you have to reprioritize because like you're in panic mode and others is like I could reprioritize because I'm in a more leisurely mode and I have kind of like a privilege of a space to do that so both of those were happening at the same time but it's something that I, I constantly struggle with I don't know how to do it like people who I need a hobby is what I need. Like, <laughs> I need a hobby. <laughs> well, this has been my pandemic hobby and I've just been trying to get information from people to apply to my own life. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations on 10 years of Leighton Zine. That's you. amazing. Thanks. I've seen your projects and I've been such a huge fan for so many years. So I'm just like thrilled to get to chat with you about them. It's just been such an honor to have you on Design Lab. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Catherine Darnsett. Now I'm joined by the producer of Design Lab, Rob Puglisi. What's up, Rob? Hey there. I love my conversation with Catherine. One of my biggest takeaways was the role of architecture and the built environment in improving public health. That she did these small-scale interventions that had a huge impact, right? Fresh moves, a mobile bus that increase access to food and food deserts, which is great. And that's all about fixing these social determinants of health that have long-term implications for the public health of communities. So architects have a vital role in the public health of communities and cities. Yeah. One of the really enlightening things to me was the story of Boombox. And you don't really think about how complicated it is to start a small business, right? Like if you're a creative or you're trying to sell a product or something like that, it is is so hard, especially in a big city to get like all the permits just to set up shop and hearing her describe how complicated it was just for her to create this thing. I was like, wow, like how could an individual get through something like that? But by creating this resource, which sounds like it's just a box, it sounds like it's just a physical thing. It's so much more than that, right? It is a 
easier way for somebody to to earn money for themselves to leverage space easily and and be an entrepreneur without having to jump through those almost impossible yeah hurdles. it really feels small scale entrepreneurship and it's so needed in so many urban areas and if you can increase economic development in areas you increase jobs and we mm-hmm. still live in a country where insurance is tied to employment and if you're not employed one you're not going to have health insurance because you can't pay for it or you're not going to have an you need an employer in order to get health insurance having employment is key to being healthy in this country we don't have a universal healthcare system and if people don't have jobs they're not going to have health insurance they're not going to be able to access care yeah talk about a uh, public health intervention enabling people to earn money for themselves with something like that. Now that's a powerful. We, we got to go there when it's safe to do so after the pandemic. Want to check out Boombox in Chicago? Want to check out the bus? I think that'd be so cool to see in person. Who do we have on for next week? So the pharmacist geek in me is really freaking out about next week's guest, Ben Branson. He's a Seedlip. Yep, yes, that's, that's right. He's the founder of Seedlip and also Acorn. It's a, another product that they released, and they are non-alcoholic. I guess you can't even call them like a cocktail, right? It's hard to really hard to describe. It's the world's first distilled non-alcoholic spirit that yes. he started. I think about six years ago. So you could actually take this spirit that's non-alcoholic, mix it. Um, and actually make a cocktail just like you would like an old fashioned. So I've actually been using C-Lip for the past six months and totally in love with it. Have you ever had a mixed drink with green peas in it before? You'll find out next week. It's going to be fun. Oh, I Not, love it. Don't, don't miss out. You can find Catherine Darnstadt's firm, Latent Design, both on Twitter and Instagram. Check them out and follow them. And please remember to do these three simple things. Subscribe to this podcast, download episodes, and rate us. You can reach out to me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, or you can send me an email, bon at designlabpod.com. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.